Welcome to Casting Hope, a sermon podcast of Hope Presbyterian Church in Columbus, Ohio. My name is Joe Hack, lead pastor at Hope, and we are so glad you're listening in wherever you are. In this moment of social distancing, we hope that our audio and streaming resources meet you where you are at and help you stay connected to God and to His promises. Summer series exploring the meaning of the cross. Historians will tell you that Jesus died, but God in His scriptures wants to tell us why. And we want to spend this summer exploring what God says about the cross of Jesus. And last week, we looked at Paul's letter to the Romans. And we learned how sin and death have us in checkmate. And there are no moves that we can humanly make to break this checkmate. Checkmate is checkmate. Anybody played chess before? Checkmate is checkmate. In Adam, we are stuck. That's Paul's argument. But Jesus, as the last Adam, as the second Adam, is not checkmated by sin or death. And so in Jesus, when we lay hold of Jesus by empty hands of faith, we are in Jesus, and in Jesus, neither are we. That was the Apostle Paul talking about the cross of Jesus. This morning, though, we are going to actually hear from Jesus himself. Jesus has a bit to say about the cross and his ministry, but Jesus also has a few things to say on the cross. And historically, this has been called the seven words of the cross. They're not exactly words so much as short, concise, terse, even labored statements from the Lord Jesus on the cross itself. And this morning, we're going to look at two in the Gospel of John. So I can read, we're going to start in verse 28 this morning of chapter 19. In the Gospel of John. And as I read, I invite you to follow along. This is God's Word. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the Scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there. So they put a sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. So Lord, with the words in my mouth and with the meditation of all of our hearts here this morning, be pleasing and acceptable to you, our rock and our redeemer. And Lord, as we meditate on you, would your spirit open the eyes of our hearts so that we would see your beauty. And it's in Jesus' name we ask this. Amen. Well, about five years ago, I had the chance to travel to Israel with my dad, and it was an amazing opportunity. Uh, and he made it clear to me that this trip was not so much for my sake as it was for your sake. And he was right. Walking through Jerusalem enhanced my understanding of the scriptures, and in many cases, even corrected my understanding of scriptures. And this was especially true of the cross. So for example, in my imagination, the cross of Jesus was always two things. Very far away and very high up. I don't know if you can relate to me, but I always assumed crucifixions were far away from the hustle and bustle of everyday life. 
secluded. And because it was far off, the cross had to be elevated super high. You know the scene, peaceful rolling hills, like imagine Lexington, Kentucky maybe. And way off in the distance you see these crosses about the height of a telephone pole. But when I walked through Jerusalem, I learned quickly that this image is not accurate. Uh, first of all, crucifixions were not far away. Uh, yes, they were outside the city walls, but that doesn't mean they were secluded. In fact, by design, they were often put at busy intersections. Which makes sense when you remember the point of Roman crucifixion. To warn citizens. Don't step out of line or this could be you. You can't warn people with a cross if they're out of sight. And second of all, crosses were not high in the sky. In fact, they were pretty low to the ground. If shame and dehumanization is the goal... The closer to eye level, the better. And we actually see this in a passage this morning. Students of Scripture sometimes struggle over a detail that John gives in verse 29. If you take your eyes back to the text, John tells us that they used a hyssop branch to give Jesus a drink. Hyssop branches are not super long. Anybody grow hyssop? Like, it's not super long. And so this becomes a problem to some readers if your image of the cross is like really high up there and really far away. But it doesn't become a problem when you realize that the mouth of Jesus was low enough to touch. And not only low enough to touch, but low enough to hear. I mean, how else do we have these statements from the cross unless his disciples and his loved ones could actually hear him? And this morning we heard two statements from the cross. I thirst and it is finished. And I believe these two words speak to two of the deepest questions that all of us here this morning are carrying. And the first question is, why do I suffer in those I love? And the second is, am I secure? Am I safe? In other words, we are meant to hear what Jesus says on the cross about the cross. And while we can unpack a multitude of implications about these two statements alone, let alone the seven statements of Jesus, I believe that these two questions, why do I suffer and am I secure, are spoken to this morning. So first, the cross speaks to suffering. The statement, I thirst speaks to suffering. We could call to mind all of the unasked for pain in our life. We could call to mind the injuries, the injustices, and the indignities that we and those we love encounter and have borne. And we wonder if there's any hope or anything beyond it. To use Anita Diamond's words, we wonder if beauty, like suffering, is meaningless. If human life is as pointless as waves on the sand, to use her phrase. This has been by philosophers and theologians called the problem of evil. The problem of suffering. 
And to call suffering and to call evil a problem is probably the greatest mistake, like understatement of love. It's the problem of all problems. And yet on the cross, we see that God is not silent about evil and suffering. In Christ, actually, we hear a simple phrase, I thirst, and this says three things about suffering. What it says is that our Lord knows injury. See, I thirst, it's been pointed out, thirst is really a feature of the cross's cruel torture. You know, it was designed to produce torturous thirst by the Roman Empire. And so when Jesus says, I thirst, it's more than how you and I feel after knowing you. There's something deeply injurious about that statement. It's proof that your Lord doesn't just know about human injury, but knows it. Experienced it. Our Lord knows injury. Our Lord knows injustice. The phrase, I thirst, means and it says that our Lord knows, doesn't just know about, but knows injustice. Jesus was blameless. And yet was unjustly executed by a court of law. He fulfills Psalm twenty-two, sixteen, which says he was in the company of evildoers, even though Jesus never even spoke evil. So when Jesus says, I thirst, it's more of just, it's more, way more than just an affirmation of his humanity, which it is. It is the cry that testifies to injustice. It says that God is not aloof to injustice. He underwent it. He experienced it. The third, I thirst, says that Jesus experienced indignity. Fleming Rutledge in her book, The Crucifixion, has an entire chapter arguing an easily missed point, and it's this, that Jesus was not just executed, that he was crucified. I'll say that again. Jesus was not just executed, he was crucified. And there's a difference. The manner in which Jesus dies is significant. Crucifixion was uniquely shameful. It was horrendously shameful. And so she writes, quote, Crucifixion as a means of execution in the Roman Empire has as its express purpose the elimination of victims from the consideration of membership in the human race. Everyone understood that the specific role of the passerby was to exacerbate the dehumanization and degradation of the person. She continues, crucifixion was cleverly designed, we might say diabolically designed, to be an almost theatrical enactment of the sadistic and inhumane impulses that lie within human beings. According to the Christian gospel, she says the Son of God voluntarily and purposefully absorbed all that, drawing it into himself. We feel the weight of suffering, and we ask God what it means. And while we may not know all the answers, we do hear him say, in Christ, I thirst. God is not aloof to injury, injustice, and dignity. He undergoes all of it in Christ. I'd like to share this story from Johnny Erickson Tata. She talks about riding down the driveway on a bike 
as a child, only to turn quickly at the bottom and to skid out. Not only to skid out, but to skid her knee. And she says that in that moment, she does not want as a child an explanation from her dad about why there's blood on her knee. What she wants is, she, is not her dad to run down and give her a lesson in gravity and acceleration and momentum. No, she, all she wants in that moment is a hug. She wants to see her dad and wants to know that her dad sees her and is committed to her. As someone who experienced unasked for suffering in her own life, Erickson Tata, she's making a costly point. It's this. We don't really get a detached philosophical explanation for the problem of evil and suffering, but God does not stand back. He rushes into our story. Jesus thirsts. The Son of God undergoes the deepest kind of injustice, injury, and dignity. When God swoops down and picks us up from the bottom of the driveway, when He wipes our blood and, yes, our tears, what this means is that we can feel the scars on His hands. And that is enough. That is all we really need. The cross speaks to our suffering. But that's not the only thing Jesus says from the cross. He says in verse 30, it is finished. And these three words, one in Greek, says three things to our insecurities. The question is, am I safe? Am I secure? And this phrase, it is finished from the mouth of Jesus on the cross, says, yes, you are secured in this way. First, we are secure in His intention. So hang on to that word, his intention. The word finished, it is finished, does not mean just over. It's over, like how we feel at the end of the movie. Like it's just over, it's completed, it's done. No, the word finished in the scriptures has to do with a goal that has been accomplished. An intention, a mission, a set intent has been fulfilled. So that Jesus says in John 17 when he's praying to his father, I glorified you on earth having accomplished the work that you have set me to do. That exact intent of the triune God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, is finished at the cross. And that's why our passage, if you were wondering, makes such a big deal about Scripture being fulfilled. That's not just a, oh, isn't that cool the Bible hangs together kind of statement. Although, it is cool that the Bible hangs together. But that's not why they say it. They're saying it because it's essentially saying God did what He said He would do and set out to do. His intent was met. It is finished here means that the triune God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, what the triune God set out to do God did in full at the cross. We see this divine intention when it says in our passage that Jesus gave up his spirit in verse 30. That phrase gave up is significant because leading up to that moment, you might get the impression that Jesus is just a pinball sort of bouncing around at the whim of evildoers. And his enemies 
Jesus is given over, and then given over, and then given over, and then given over. And then here at the cross, he cries out, it is finished. And who does the giving over? Jesus does the giving over. He gives over his spirit. It is finished. He did exactly what he came to do. He came to die for his blood. When Jesus says it is finished, Jesus says, I did what I came to do. And here's the takeaway for you. The cross tells us that it was Jesus' intent to do all that was necessary to draw you into the triune fellowship of God. You are secure in that intent. You're also secure in your salvation because of these words, it is finished. It speaks to the once for all nature of God's salvation, like the reading we just heard this morning. Here's how Paul puts it in Romans 6, verse 10. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. Once for all. And the author of Hebrews says in chapter 7, verse 27, he has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered himself up. This means that your okayness is not something in your hands. Your security, your okayness, your security is not rooted in daily practice. It is rooted in God's finished work on the cross. There's nothing more to be done. We're not saved by anything we do. We're saved by what God does. And it's already been done. It's finished. It is finished. It is finished. Friends, it is finished. You are secure. Finally, in his affection. It is finished means you have security in his affection. Here's what I mean. Jesus' mission was to draw you, yes, you, you, all of you, into joyous friendship with the triune God. Jesus wanted to do this. He was not dragged into this. He wasn't dragged into this by God the Father. He did it for the joy before him. And so when you hear, it is finished, I want you to hear from Jesus, finally, and completely. And this will not go off the rails. My sheep will not. Insert your name there, instead of my sheep. Finally, and completely, and this will not go off the rails. Say your name to yourself right now. Will know. Sometimes we look at the cross as a metaphysical math problem. Jesus dies for us, therefore, God is sort of mathematically obligated to save us. Which means deep down we carry the doubt always does God actually love me? Or even more to the point, does God even like me? I know he's mathematically obligated to save me, but does he like me? 
And this is the point that theologian Kelly Kapich makes in his book, You're Only Human. And I, I would urge you actually to buy that book and read the chapter titled, Does God Like Me? With Kapich, I, feel, I fear that many of us look at the cross and we see two things. An angry father and a compassionate son at odds. And the compassionate son sort of takes a licking for us. And then a cranky father is now obligated to sort of be with us. But never the real us, never the real me. The real me is kind of always ducking behind Jesus. And Kavich compares this image to a dad who loves his son but hates his friends, his son's friends. Or a mother. He lets his son's friends come over, well, because, well, my son likes them, I guess I'll tolerate them. Deep down, dad doesn't want these kids over. Deep down, these kids annoy him. But he tolerates them. Why? Because his son likes them. Well, that is not at all the picture that the Bible gives us. The triune fellowship, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, number one. And number two, it's not at all the picture that the Bible gives us about the cross. And number three, it's not at all the picture that we see even in our passage this morning. Because what we see in our passage this morning is Jesus on a triune mission, Father, Son, and Spirit, acting in joyful partnership to rescue us so that we would be in joyous fellowship with God. Jesus gladly and willingly and intentionally takes on the curse of the law in our place. Why? To restore fellowship, friends. So when Jesus Christ is finished, Jesus is proclaiming to all of us, God does not just tolerate you. God loves you. He likes you. This is why Jesus came. And the real you. And this alone, I think, answers the question, am I secure? I want to ask, how do you usually answer this question? Maybe you pursue security by following rules. Others, maybe by taking on new challenges. Perhaps maybe you feel most secure when you're serving other people. Or performing well at school, performing well at sports, performing well at your job or your career. Maybe you get security by testing your friends and family and testing their love of you. Or maybe by mastering a skill, you feel secure. Maybe you feel secure under strong human leaders or perhaps tribes that give you a sense of safety. Maybe you find security by pursuing new things. Every single week you're on to something new and that makes you feel safe or perhaps by avoiding conflict altogether. The point is, none of these schemes will ever be complete, will never be finished. They are never finished. They never deliver. They offer a pseudo security. What if instead today, what if even this morning, you relax under the cry of Jesus, it is finished. Let's just pray that now, Lord. Would you enable our hearts to relax under the cry, it is finished. Jesus, in your mission, you sought to do all that is necessary to bring us into fellowship with you. By the Holy Spirit. And we ask, Lord, that you would create in us 
a security that cannot be manufactured by our own efforts, that will never be finished. Lord, as we bring and call to mind our unasked for sufferings, we hear the words, I thirst. We know that you are not far off. You endured them yourself, absorbed them into yourself. Lord, as we heard read, we know and we eagerly expect that day when you come to fix all that is out of joint. But until then, we place our hope and our rest in you, in your finished work on the cross. So in Jesus' name we ask this. Thanks for tuning in. For more information about our church and for more resources like this, visit our website at hopechurchcolumbus.org.